Atheist Nomads, episode 399. FFRF with Annie Laurie Gaylor. The podcast you're about to listen to includes cursing and talking about hoo haws. Please be advised. Welcome to another episode of Atheist Nomads. We're going to be jumping right into the interview right after a reminder that episode 400 live stream is coming up this Saturday. So if you're listening to this a couple days after release, then you've already missed out on it. So Saturday the 20th, 2 o'clock p.m., Mountain Daylight Time. And now for the interview. And we are now joined by Annie Laurie Gaylor from the Freedom From Religion Foundation, who is both one of the co-founders and one of the current co-presidents for a really long time as well. So welcome to Atheist Nomads. Thank you. So let's go ahead and get started with... Okay, chances are all of our listeners know about the organization, but what's the kind of the brief rundown on what FFR is and what it does? The Freedom from Religion Foundation is right now the nation's largest association of free thinkers, and that means atheists, agnostics, skeptics. We like the term free thought as an umbrella, uh, which means um, people who form their opinions about religion based on reason rather mm-hmm. than on faith, tradition, or authority. Uh, probably 75% of our members call themselves atheists, but we like to joke, we don't care what you call yourselves, we all disbelieve <laughs> in the same gods. Oh, we man. don't want to have the warfare, sex, and schisms over what we call ourselves. <laughs> and, <laughs> oh, that's awesome. And we also work, we have two purposes, so we educate the public about non-theism, and because we think it's terribly important that reason should prevail in the mm-hmm. public discourse. And we work very diligently as a state church watchdog. And we're known for our state church advocacy and for upholding the constitutional principle of you know, separation between church and state. Mm-hmm. And we're a membership group. Um, we started with the original two of us, my mother and myself, back in the 70s when I was a college student. She was asked wow. to go national with it in 1978, and uh, we now have over 35,000 members, current members in North America, members in every state and every province. And right. we, yeah, and you guys do a lot of really good stuff. Like I know I've, I've called up FFRF a couple times dealing with uh, some issues at my niece's schools, <laughs> and one of them, yeah, got a really awesome response really quick. And the school got the pastor out of the middle school cafeteria. Oh, yes. They do pray, uh, P-R-E-Y, upon children. So I'm glad you contacted us. We do have a a report, a state church violation, under our legal link at FFRF.org. We get, um, some years we've gotten as many as 5,000 complaints. Last year it was closer to 3,000 complaints. We're one of the few groups out there that will help members of the public uh, deal with state church violations in mm-hmm. their areas. And uh, sometimes there's nothing we can do. Sometimes people don't get back to us, but we try to act on anything that we have enough information on that where the law is something we can do something about. And if we can't do something about it, we often end up going to court. <clears throat> We've taken over 80 lawsuits. We've won Many, many victories for the separation of church and state. Um, we have a upcoming victory about to announce. Ooh, very that's a nice. very interesting case. But I, I can't 
talk about it. Um, but it, it is, uh, I can say that the case is regarding a religious test to register to vote. Oh, wow. Which is unconstitutional, and we should be able to um, publicly announce that has been resolved and uh, in our favor. So um, that was an election year case that we just filed right before the mm-hmm. presidential election. Often cases go on for many years. Um, we now have a team of 10 attorneys. And we have two legal assistants helping them. And we also have legal fellows. We have just out of college, out of law school, and we have uh, interns in the summer. And actually, we have two interns helping us during the school year this semester. That um, sounds have, really expensive. <laughs> <laughs> we have um, editorial staff, and we have a newspaper, Frita Today, that's published 10 times a mm-hmm. year. We like to let people know what we do with their dues. And so we stay in touch with members around the country that way. Um, we ha- are always issuing press releases about um, what we do. We have a director of communications. We have a radio show ourselves. And it's a podcast, Free Thought Radio. It's on in about seven stations broadcasting, and then it's mm. a podcast. We have a TV show called Free Thought Matters that's on in 13 cities. These are major metropolitan areas such as Los Angeles, San Francisco, New York, Chicago, Washington, um, Denver, Minneapolis. Uh, not everywhere, but lots of places. And we also have a Facebook Live kind of interactive show on Wednesdays at noon central where people can call in and it's called ask an atheist. It's often including interviews with newsmakers or with our staff. So we're trying to do a lot of public relations, public promotion of our point of views because we know how important it is for our point of view to be heard. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and your organization is one of those that, between all of that and the court cases and the legal staff, I, I'm sure your members, like, it's awesome that you do try to make sure your members know where their money's going, but it's pretty obvious where it's going. <laughs> yeah, I, I think so. I mean, we just, but we don't want to rest on our laurels. And right. There's so much work to do. And of course, the pendulum swings back and forth. We have just dodged i i said we've dodged a bullet with the last election but one of our board members said it was more like a torpedo you know with trump not Mm -hmm. getting back into office but we have such a mess um to clean up um especially in the courts yeah so we've seen a third of the federal judiciary appointed by trump and he was using a religious litmus test to appoint judges they were being approved by the Federalist Society, and they had to be anti-abortion and so on. And so, you know, of course, he also appointed a third of our Supreme Court, Mm -hmm. two stolen seats, thanks to Mitch McConnell, that will uh, haunt our nation, even your little three-year-old now, when she grows up, will still be dealing with these appointments. Yep. And so um, the Freedom from Religion Foundation is very interested in court expansion at the um, appeals court level, the federal level, the district level, and the appeals court level, and expansion at the Supreme Court level. And um, yeah. Because when it comes to the courts, you know, you, you file the case and it goes to a district court judge, 
the trial judge. And then if you lose, you have to appeal to one of the appeals courts where you get, it's a three-judge panel, right? Yes. Which is randomly selected and could be three Trump appointees. Oh, yes. And uh, even aside from Trump, um, the New York Times every few years will publish charts. There'll be um, the blue judges and the red judges. They'll say who appointed these judges. Mm -hmm. And when you're looking at the Bush judges starting at at least maybe not Bush one, but Bush two, even Reagan judges. You are looking at extremists and, and ultra ultra extremists. I mean, what Trump was doing with the Federalist Society was really nothing new. It was just more overt. And so we have seen most of the appeals court uh, justices judges being appointed by Republican presidents. Mm-hmm. Uh, and although we are a nonpartisan group, we are also realists, and we know that. When you have litmus tests for appointing these judges by the Republican Party, mm-hmm. it's pretty clear how they're going to vote, and it has a very chilling effect. Now, the fact that Biden won, the fact that right now there's a narrow majority with Democrats could also have a chilling effect on the courts. You know, they may watch the P's and Q's, mm-hmm. but we are looking at a very dangerous situation. I mean, uh, just because Trump isn't president doesn't mean that his judges and justices won't be making very bad decisions. And we um, are, for example, seeing the shadow docket where they're taking a lot of action on on cases where they're not real rules, they're just interceding. Mm -hmm. A lot of shadow docket cases right now to punish governors who are um, having social distancing rules that apply equally to churches as to other groups on a content-neutral basis, and being shot down by our Supreme Court. Well, even punishing favorably handling churches on the, like, if there's any restrictions at all. <laughs> well, yes, they, they, there's been uh, two bad decisions so far, shadow decisions in California, another one um, in New York City. Mm-hmm. But even just um, a year ago or nine months ago in June, before we lost Ruth Bader Ginsburg, we had Justice uh, Chief Justice Roberts siding with the majority, upholding um, California distancing rules that apply to churches. Yeah, and he's you know, and he's hardly uh, liberal, mm-hmm. but I mean, he's lost control of the court if he ever wanted to keep it a little bit more moderate. Uh, with the addition of Amy Coney Barrett. And this really is an injustice. There is no way to, uh, it's irrevocable. There's no way to make up for what Mitch McConnell did in denying Obama his right to nominate a justice and have a hearing, Merrick Garland in 2016, under this faux, phony argument that it was an election year and he was a lame duck. So the next president should be allowed to replace uh, the the seat that was vacated at the death of Scalia. And of course, this would have been a huge boon to the liberal side of the Supreme Court. And then he turns around last fall, in 40, 43 days before the election, when mm-hmm. Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, announces we're going to put somebody on before the election. Over 60 million people, or 30 million, I forget how many, had were voting at the point when yeah. uh, the Senate approved Amy Coney Barrett. Well, and that was 
was it the before the, fastest, the election? Either fastest yeah. or second fastest Supreme Court confirmation in U.S. history. In an election year, in an election yeah. almost month. Yeah. So uh, the hypocrisy, the rank hypocrisy of Mitch McConnell, um, I think, is only outdone by the harm that this has done to our courts. And how do you make up for it when you've had this kind of partisan, um, uh, unprecedented manipulation of our courts? When we have to sit that these are lifetime appointments, I think the only thing that can be done is expansion. And there's a very good argument for it, because in the past, um, there's nothing about how many justices you have to have in the Mm -hmm. Constitution. And they would match the appeals courts, the number of appeals courts, but with the number of justices. And there were at one point there were nine. So we have nine justices. Well, now there are 13 uh, appeals courts. So uh, uh, having it go up to 13 would be a very, very good uh, solution. And in keeping with historic precedent. And we should probably have more appeals courts. That's And that is even, that is incontestable and there can be no ideological battling over that. Um, the population has grown hugely. The mm-hmm. dockets are so slow. They've known this. They haven't even expanded um, I think it's, no, I can't remember if it's the district court or the appeals court since the 90s. One or the other has been mm-hmm. way overdue. So, um, yes, we. there's no question at the lower level. Uh, they are struggling and everybody knows it. So that expansion should not be considered controversial. We expect the Supreme Court um, expansion um, suggestions to be controversial, but it's very important to have this debate and this dialogue. And there's a, d- a bill that's going to be introduced very shortly in Congress. Yeah. Well, and I'm in Idaho, which is in the Ninth Circuit, that's where right. it's four years to get to the appeals court if you're lucky, six years or eight years if you're unlucky. Yeah. And this is not justice. This is no. deferred <laughs> justice. So, uh, and they're and they're all they're all overworked and they're. Tr- trying to keep people on senior status because they're so overworked. So this is a no-brainer at the uh, the district and appeals court level. And, but we need it. And I think I think that President Biden is getting the message um, on that. So, well, you know, we feel some optimism, but it's got to be done soon. It's got to be done in the next two years yeah. before the midterms. Yeah. Uh, Since midterms don't usually go well for the incumbent, and when you have razor-thin majorities. And I think what is at most at stake, really, although everything is civil rights, um, voting rights, so crucial, and of course the wall of separation, um, we know that many of these Christian nationalist-type judges are just uh, eager to dismantle that wall and get rid of 70 plus years of good court precedent against religion Mm -hmm. in the schools, for example. But what concerns me the most at the moment, which more of a life and death matter, is abortion rights. Because there are all of these courts passing, all of these states passing bans on abortion. We just saw two more in the last few weeks. Um, We have already bans that are being challenged, the one in Mississippi, for example, mm-hmm. has been before the Supreme Court since the fall, and they just keep, um, you know, they keep 
moving it back on the docket. They haven't made a decision about what to do with it. And they have the votes to overturn Roe versus Wade. Mm-hmm. You, it's incontestable. And it will be a question of, um, you know, whether they think they should kind of undo it gradually so we don't have anything left, maybe rather than doing it all at once. But they've got the votes. And this is very, very scary. Yeah. Yeah. Because what is it? Something like 30 states have already on the books or are in the process of getting on the books either outright or virtually outright abortion bans? I don't think it's that many. Um, you know, it keeps keeps adding up. The last time I looked, it was more like nine or 11. Okay. But this state of, but there are many, many hostile, what they call trap laws. There's probably 30 states with trap laws, which are laws that make it harder for uh, women to have abortion care. You know, like 24-hour waiting periods, that kind of thing. Things that increase the cost Mm -hmm. and just are stumbling blocks. And some of them are very onerous that there would close clinics. But there are uh, at least, I think, nine or 11 states right now that still have criminal laws on the books from before Roe versus Wade. Mm. And the state of Wisconsin, which is where I live, we're in Madison, Wisconsin, has one such law. They finally overturned the uh, law, the prohibition that would put women in jail for having an abortion, but they left the prohibition, the criminal law that would put doctors, physicians into jail for up to six years. And we have not been able to overturn that law in Wisconsin. Oh, wow. Um, and this, we probably never will be able to overturn it with our legislature. And the gerrymandering. So well, don't, you know, it's very don't say never. Uh, Oregon, it, it took Oregon 95 years to get a prohibition on black people living in the state removed from their constitution. But it happened. That's awful. Yeah. And it only took 95 years. Well, I think, though, that the reason that we needed the courts is because uh, we have religious influence on our legislature mm-hmm. here in Wisconsin, as is true in many places. And uh, that was really one of the reasons why my mother and I started the Freedom From Religion Foundation. She was an early abortion rights advocate in the state of Wisconsin and was also on the National NARAL board working to overturn laws that criminalized contraception and mm. abortion in the late 60s and early 70s. And I was following her around as a junior high school student and high school student. And it was very clear who the only opposition, the only organized opposition to abortion was religious in nature. Mm -hmm. We would see the state capitol here in Madison filled with bust-in school children, parochial school children, nuns and priests. And they'd all get up and talk about the Bible says and God says. And there is no other... Um, reason to be against abortion. There's no organized reason, but it's that idea of insolment, you know, right. and that Which, it's sin to have sex without creating and at a that, baby. And at that point in time, it was, it was mostly, or was it completely just a Catholic issue? It was in our state. It was mostly a Catholic issue. Uh, certainly, the fundamentalist Protestants uh, were anti-abortion, but they become much more so. And, uh, you know, in recent years, like the Hobby Lobby mm-hmm. kind of ruling where this, you know, the the Green family that runs that terrible 
chain, Hobby Lobby, um, says that they should be able to determine what kind of contraception their women employees choose under Obamacare, that they shouldn't have to cover contraception. And that's a fundamentalist base. And of course, the Mormon church is anti-abortion. Ultra-Hasidic branches Mm -hmm. of Judaism are anti-abortion, but the most Protestant denominations that are not fundamentalist are pro-choice now. But you've gotten to see a lot of that that shift, though, because like I I I know I've even seen it in in my lifetime with the church I grew up in, um, the Adventist Church. It was the which church Seventh Adventist. Um, oh, seven, oh, okay. They were pro-choice officially in 1994 and didn't have another official position on it until a couple of years ago where they have switched to wow. almost completely anti-abortion. Yeah, well, we definitely have seen um, some switches, but, you know, things like the American, uh, the uh, Southern Baptists have always been anti-abortion. Okay. Many of the Pentecostal, charismatic, independent, you know, fundamentalist evangelical type churches, but a few more of the evangelical have switched, but very unfortunate. Yeah. And it's all about controlling women mm-hmm. um, and very patriarchal. But anyway, that's really why our eyes were open to the harm of having religion ever in our government, ever determining our social policy, especially about women. But it could have been something else. It could have been gay rights, LGBTQ, it could have been evolution, you know, creationism in the schools. But in our particular case, it was the religious reproductive, the religious war against uh, reproductive rights. And unfortunately, when you say we've seen changes, I mean, I feel like we're right back where we were when I was, you know, before Roe versus Wade, when I was still in junior high school, um, that, uh, Religion is still ruling the roost here, and uh, it's you know it's just so obvious when Alabama, for example, passed its abortion ban, and the, mm-hmm. the woman governor started talking about God. It's just so obvious yeah. they they want to impose their religious dogma in their faith that there's uh, ensoulment at conception and so on on everybody else, on un- unwilling others. And it's um, talk about butting their noses into other people's business. And they say that they're the party that wants to get religion off your backs and they want to get it into your bedrooms. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. And it's funny with the insolment thing, because that that language is is specifically Catholic, but it's definitely spread. Uh, and it's it's disturbing as that that's helped entrench it even more in. Uh, a lot of the evangelical and similar circles. Well, uh, my mother also had started the Women's Medical Fund, which is the longest mm-hmm. live abortion fund in the country, helping about a thousand Wisconsin women without means pay for abortion care. It's a volunteer fund. I just, I've been on the board for 30 years. I just rotated off. Um, and uh, my mother died in 2015, but that work carries on. And I did all the intake last year during the pandemic, and the need is so great Yeah. Um, because we're one of a majority of states that cut off abortion care for women on medical assistance. Wisconsin and about 35 other states do not uh, cover abortion care if you 
qualify for health care through your state. And of oh. course, Henry Hyde, the Catholic in Congress, cut off abortion at the federal level, abortion mm-hmm. care, through the Hyde Amendment. And um, I guess other, everything else is taking a priority, but I am heartened that Biden has said that he opposes the Hyde Amendment. And I surely hope that is going to be coming up. If it's yeah. not, it's not going to be in the first hundred days. I'm hoping it's going to be coming up soon because it's such a, it creates so much uh, misery and hardship. And it's so unfair that we would have two systems of abortion, legal abortion. is It's legal if you have money or health care, but if you're low income mm-hmm. or no income right now, as so many women are in the pandemic, mm-hmm. forget about it. And that's and it's uh, very racist, and picks on the most vulnerable yeah. people in society. Usually, people who are already mothers, who are trying to take care of the family they already have. So it's a it's a huge need. Yeah, and that also helps explain a quirk I saw in Idaho's current anti-abortion bill that's going through, which would prohibit any. Any organization that receives government funding from even mentioning that or abortion is a possibility, it goes yeah, beyond even like just the, prohibiting referrals. Well, that's like the the global gag yeah. order that was thankfully um, repealed again by Biden. Every time a Republican gets mm-hmm. into the presidency, they <laughs> invoke it since since reagan the mexican city policy yep and then it's repealed by um democrats but it's unfortunate to see state anti-abortion uh public officials try to pull something like that at the state level now there's the weird quirk in it is it doesn't apply to anybody on medicaid you mean you have public funding for abortion in idaho no all of this bill is explicitly excludes anybody who's on a federal health care program uh, from this gag rule. But in, so anybody on private insurance, it would be it was just it ends up being one of these really weird rules that ends up sounding like it just doesn't really do anything other than well, try there's to probably de- some mischief other <laughs> than try to defund Planned Parenthood. Yeah. And of course, Mitch McConnell just came on again today saying that's going to be the Republican goal when they get back in power. (laughs) And, uh, you know, just clearly a war against women's reproductive Mm -hmm. rights. But also, speaking of the Catholic Church, you've just seen the news that the Vatican is saying it's a sin and you can't have priests uh, have anything to do with Mm -hmm. um, same-sex partnerships or marriages Mm -hmm. and using this humiliating language. And it's just business as usual with the Catholic Church over the LGBTQ movement. Yeah. And um, we have had some window dressing with Pope Francis. Oh, isn't he liberal? But when it comes down to it, nope, nothing changes. And so a very um, retrogressive and suppressive um, impact around the world, mm-hmm. causing a lot of misery. Well, and Anna, uh nearly 2000 year old organization is going to be is something that will inherently move slowly which is why we need it as far away from our government as possible <laughs> here here <laughs> so then okay so when ffrf got started um 
So you were, your mother was a, a did she identify as an atheist or a free thinker? Um, an atheist and free thinker. Okay. When I, she's a, she was a second generation free thinker oh. on her father's side of the family. So I'm, that makes me a third. And when we were little, my parents told us that they were agnostic. So that's how we identified. Okay. But they felt very strongly that we should be allowed to make up our own minds for ourselves when we were old enough to understand all of these um, abstractions. But in the meantime, that it was their duty to protect our innocent minds from all of these neurotic ideas about hell and sin and concepts that we could not possibly absorb, like, um, you know, this idea that uh, we were responsible for the death of Jesus, and that kind of thing. So they, you know, they that's what parents should do. You, mm-hmm. You educate your kids, but you also protect them from harmful, you know, shame-inducing, scary um, myths and and things that aren't true. So um, that's how we were raised. And uh, we became, I think, all of us just felt more that we called ourselves atheists by the time I was in high school. And we were very, very interested in this, the harm of religion and the harm of religion and government. And, um, but what led us to create the Freedom from Religion Foundation was actually encountering prayer at the Madison City Council and at the Dane County Board, which uh, were local. And some of it was led by clergy. And so we went before them and we thought it would seem a little weak to just go in like a mother-daughter team. Mm -hmm. So we had been banding about this idea that the Establishment Clause, you know, hear about freedom of religion but there it's what we really need is freedom from religion and government so that's why we chose this kind of alliterative name so we just said well we're with the freedom from religion foundation and people it got front page coverage people wanted to join us and they've been joining ever since and there's a real groundswell of support that, by the, that, those of us who are nuns that just N-O-N-E-S. that literally started just with you and your mom wanting to be more official at a, a council meeting. Yep. That's amazing. And, and um, then, you know, we were contacted by people wanting us to stop violations around the country. And we started off very small, of course, but yeah. um, have um, grown significantly. And so have the number of secular people. Uh, when we started, you know, it was kind of hard to find a celebrity or journalist who identified as non-religious, that's not hard today. And over 24% of the U.S. adult population today identifies as unaffiliated or non-religious. And when we look at the numbers of young people, uh, Gen, uh, I think it's Gen, Gen Z, mm-hmm. we're seeing 20 to 21% actually calling themselves atheists or agnostics up to 43% of that young people identifying as having no religion. So it's the March of the Nuns, N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S. And it's, you know, this is an awful lot of people to leave out of our national motto, for example. Right. You know, in God we trust? Well, no, not to many, many Americans. That turns us into as if we're second-class citizens. And uh, my mother always used to like to joke, it, 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 it's not even accurate, the motto, in God we trust, to be accurate. It would have to say, in God some of us trust, 
And that would make a very silly motto. Mm -hmm. And uh, One Nation Under God, that that was uh, an interpolation from the 1950s, along with the motto in God We Trust, being a McCarthy-era relic. And these things have all done the disservice of teaching generations of children that somehow God has something to do with our government, when in fact we have an entirely godless and secular constitution. Yeah. And uh, we've been saying that for 40-some years, and I'm hoping it's sinking in a little bit, (laughs) because most public officials don't seem to have read the constitution. Yeah, and it's... it's like your parents would have been atheist or close to atheist identifying when those laws were getting passed in the McCarthy era. They weren't aware of it. Oh. Um, I remember being in fifth grade. My mother was quote unquote a working mother. She, she had a business and she was rarely at home at lunch, but for some reason she was home at lunch. And I, for some reason recited the pledge of allegiance to her. And I remember her jaw dropped. And she looked shocked, and I was so startled. She had never heard. She never knew. She was busy having babies. <laughs> she didn't know and, and, and always working. And yeah. she didn't know that they had stuck under God in the Pledge of Allegiance. And I always remembered that shock, you know. Um, and so, you know, it's kind of busy people. They don't know what yeah. Congress is up to. There was a lot going on in that McCarthy era. And uh, But I felt like I've spent most of the rest of my life trying to undo some of these bad laws that were passed in the 1950s. And FFRF has really done a great deal, but the courts uh, only let us do so much, even before uh, Trump had his put his stamp on the courts. We were dealing with a very conservative um, Supreme Court. We have taken cases against the year of the Bible. That was a 1952 act of Congress suggested by Billy Graham, setting Mm -hmm. aside a day of prayer every year and enjoining the president to dictate to citizens to gather together individually or in churches to pray and telling us what to pray about. We won a resounding um, decision at the federal level in 2010. It got covered internationally made huge shockwaves, and then when we got up to the appeals court, we were thrown out on standing on the right to sue, and we never had made a stronger case. We have sued against the parish uh, exemption Mm -hmm. that was passed in the 50s that unfairly uh, benefits churches and, and clergy by letting them basically get uh, paid an ex- uh, a parish. They're, they're getting paid an allotment that they and can subtract from their taxable income that none of us, the rest of us get. And we won that twice before the uh, district court, and then it got turned aside at the appeals level, and there was no point in going up to the Supreme Court. I was a, a, I was a theology major in, in college and did a year of seminary study and uh, almost got hired on as a pastor. And if I had, I would have been paid, this would have been 2006, I would have been paid uh, I think $45,000 a year, plus gotten a housing allowance separate from that and a car allowance. Yeah, the car allowance, we didn't even go into that. Yeah, that's a, um, so you know what I'm talking about. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, and uh, my husband is a former minister, Dan Barker, and he's now co-president of the Freedom From Religion Foundation. And he has a much more interesting story than I do because I, I was raised without religion. 
but he he thought his way out of evangelism and he was a evangelist himself and he because he um was an associate pastor assistant pastor at several churches he got the the housing allowance mm-hmm. and he said it wasn't like something that he even asked for it was just done automatically yeah and so you know like if you're if you're paid say your income is like what you said forty five thousand mm-hmm. dollars well then they'll give you whatever fifteen thousand more to pay for your they can pay for any number of mm-hmm. you can use it for any number of housing expenses including mortgage rent improvements a swimming pool um, all kinds of things. Yeah, I know some and of the, the justification they used that. was yeah. the housing allowance allowed them to pay the same salary for every pastor in the Northwestern United States. All got the exact same pay. Well, with a little bit of variation for years of service, but like the highest paid were only, I think, $10,000 a year more than the the newest fresh out of school. But you couldn't get a house in Seattle on $45,000 a year. You might be able to in a really rural place in, in Eastern Washington, but you're not going to in Seattle for sure. And so the housing allowance allows them to pay everybody the same, but then adjust for the cost of, of housing in that place. Mm-hmm. And then so this the, is, are you saying this is Seventh-day Adventist? Yeah, this is their, there was like some of their oh. justification for how they, they did that housing allowance. And the car allowance allowed them to cover these, lo- some large um, multi-church uh, districts where pastors might be driving 150,000 miles a year. Well, their cars are going to wear out faster, so they should be able to give them more money for those cars and not have it have to come out of their salary. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. and. So what happens make is make a taxable salary. <laughs> the rest of us pay more because clergy pay less in taxes. Say because yeah. say you as you're saying you got that 45 you would have gotten a $45,000 mm-hmm. salary and then maybe they would put I don't know 15,000 for the housing allowance. Yeah. You would not pay taxes on that extra 15,000. Right. I mean that's a huge benefit. But not only is it a benefit for the clergy, it's a benefit for the churches. Yep. Because they are paying a they can pay less money because untaxed money goes further. Yep. So it's a real, uh, it's a real subsidy of religion in our nation. Absolutely. And we had almost every sect or um, almost every denomination against us, including some uni- Unitarian Universalists signing amicus briefs against the Freedom from Religion Foundation's very gallant court attempt. And we really did fight so hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and again, you know, there was no point when we were, when we failed at the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals when we knew it was going to go before the Supreme Court. This is the Supreme Court before, um, before Amy Coney Barrett and before uh, Gorsuch. We didn't have the votes. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's very frustrating to get that close. and. We hope that we've raised consciousness on these issues. We think there's been a lot of consciousness raised on the pledge issue. Michael Nudow, who's sued over that in California and had this wonderful victory at the Ninth Circuit back in, I think it was 2002 or three, but then it got overturned on a standing by the Supreme Court. So it has raised consciousness. We think it's terribly important people know that the Pledge of Allegiance 
didn't used to be religious. It mm-hmm. was written by a liberal clergyman in the 1890s. His family opposed them tampering with the pledge. This was proposed by uh, the Knights of Columbus and other clergy taking credit for this and that group called the Family, that nefarious mm-hmm. kind of shadowy group that puts on the National Prayer Breakfast. They claim credit for it. Um, and they got that passed in Congress, you know, just after, at the height of the McCarthy era, imposing, well, dividing our nation, one nation indivisible with liberty and justice for all. Well, then you divide by sticking one nation under God. So very un, um, very unhelpful in having children understand that we are a country that does not have, we're not a theocracy, we're a country that's secular. You can be any religion you want or none at all, but the government isn't supposed to take sides on religion. But they grow up reciting that pledge, and it makes it seem like we're a theocracy, that you have to believe in a God or you're a second-class citizen. Yeah, and even just from a stylistic standpoint, uh, I, I, when I was in, it was a sophomore at a Adventist school, and we had a weird music service we did. The mayor came, and it started off with religious music, and then the sun went down. Seventh Adventist, so sun went down. No longer Sabbath, and we went into political uh, to, to patriotic music. And we had a, I had the mic to lead everybody in reciting the Pledge of Allegiance to music. And one nation, yeah, one nation indivisible flows, one nation under God indivisible does not. Yes, it did spoil the rhythm. And reading that to, or reciting that to music made it even worse. Hmm. It like really the the rhythm being off just yeah it made well, it more my, awkward. <laughs> my husband is old enough to have been in kindergarten just the year before uh, in 1953 when um, he was going to a religious school for kindergarten and he recite he learned a secular constitution or I'm sorry a secular pledge of allegiance. The next year, he was put into a regular public school in the first grade, and he still remembers how jarring it was, even though he was raised in a religious home, to be suddenly given this new pledge with under God in it. It didn't seem right to him. Mm-hmm. So people who are in, he's, he's 71 and a half, people who are in their 70s, 80s, 90s remember growing up and mm-hmm. reciting a completely godless pledge of allegiance. And... Uh, some of them are on our Supreme Court, mm-hmm. but other people were all raised, like myself, with and you, with mm-hmm. a, a godly Pledge of Allegiance, and it really is an affront. Um, we aren't one nation under God. It's such a braggadocio thing to do, you know, this idea that God is on our side. And a lot of people have pointed out that um, the Nazis put that on their buckle, the buckle of their belts, God meet uns, God with us. I mean, anybody can claim God's on their side. Mm-hmm. Well, Dylan has a song about it, and it's just um, kind of a fatuous uh, theopatriotism that is not yeah. ha- that's harmful. Yeah, you can get some interesting things that happen. Like, I was at my, one of my niece's uh, eighth grade graduation in a rural town in Idaho, which I will not name, 
that where you would have expected everybody to just get up and you know put their hand on their heart and recite the pledge and almost everybody got up put their hands on their hearts and the sound level decreased about 20% for the under god <laughs> good there are a bunch of people who just skipped that yeah well our country is definitely changing and it would be nice to go back to the original pledge nice to get god off of our currency Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that didn't happen. It wasn't on our paper our paper money until 1957, and it took a while to get on. Um, that was another act of Congress in the 1950s. And that's also been such a sim um, harmful symbolic violation because we're constantly being asked, well, how can you say our nation's not based in God? It's not even on our money. So a very um, frustrating to be dealing with these McCarthy era uh, incursions, and we should really be raising children, educating children to be proud that we were the first among nations to adopt an entirely godless constitution. There's no religious test for public office. There's no God, no Ten Commandments in our constitution. Uh, we have that separation of church and state that has allowed the free exercise of religion to flourish. Yeah. But um, there's always been this religious war against this uh, secular constitution right from the beginning. Yeah. There was the Christian party in politics um, fighting Jefferson, fighting. Uh, they're the people who got the mail delivery stopped in the 1820s. We used to have mail delivery on Sundays. Hmm. Every couple yeah. generations, we get this uh, backlash against secularism. Mm -hmm. The and, Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening. There mm -hmm. was a... Yep. Another one right after the Civil War and during the Civil War, and it keeps repeating. Yep, it does. And uh, we're also looking at this redefinition of the idea of religious liberty as if it's a weapon instead of a shield. That if you're religious, somehow the normal civil liberties rights of other people don't apply to you. You know, this whole Hobby Lobby idea that you can deny employees contraception that you disapprove of, or this idea that cake makers can refuse to, um, you know, as a place of a public accommodation, can don't have to make a cake for a gay couple, or it, it's a very pernicious um, thought. And of course, Trump was promoting it very widely, mm -hmm. and we're hoping it will sort of recede now in this current climate, but we are dealing with a lot of executive orders that still need to be overturned. And that is one of the things the Freedom from Religion Foundation is working on. And we do have a governmental affairs director, a lobbyist in DC, for example, and working with co other sec secular coalitions to try to do, undo some of that harm. And do you, I'm sure you've seen the, some of the language popping up in some of these uh, decisions about hostility towards religion. Is that a concept you're concerned with? Oh, yes. Spread? Yes. Yeah, um, well, yeah, with the courts the way they are, the appointed, um, the people who've appointed them are going to make it very uh, difficult. And yes, it isn't hostility to religion to have government neutrality. Mm -hmm. But it's kind of like the Jesus in the New Testament saying, if you're not with me, you're against me, which is what he basically says. Mm -hmm. And Many religious people who have been indoctrinated by their religions and who haven't been learning in their civics classes about why we 
separate religion from government. Many of them think that they have the right to impose their religion by law on other people. And it's such a boorish thing to do, but it's, it's so harmful. And this is one of the things that we're doing every day at FFRF. These uh, complaints, like you called in a complaint at your school, will get countless complaints, for example, about coaches imposing Christian prayers on a captive audience of football players, for example. Mm-hmm. It's, they can't separate their personal religion from their governmental position, in this case, being a public school coach, and they misuse it to try to impose their personal beliefs on others. And, you know, when we look at the pandemic, we should be, it should be so clear where do the answers come from? They haven't come from above. They've come from science. Yeah. And how much we need science, it, our whole globe, um, staying at home and at risk and how many millions and 500,000 people dying in this country and people at risk. And science has provided the answer, not prayer. And yet, how many public officials keep calling for days of prayer? It's mm-hmm. it's so medieval, so uh, anti-intellectual. And, you know, it's fine if they want to pray, but it should have no part of government. Well, right. you know, we want to be we want to be promoting the public welfare, as our Constitution says, not public religion. And uh, we really owe so much to the scientists and medical people who have gotten us these vaccines so quickly. And that is due to science. It has nothing to do with religion. Yeah. Yeah. And to, to get the, the vaccines and the actual development on them was literally a weekend is amazing. Uh, both the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, it was like 72 hours to actually develop the vaccine. It then just took so long to test them. Oh, really? I didn't know yeah. that. Well, these people are heroes mm-hmm. and unsung heroes, and we should be promoting human ingenuity and creativity and um, looking around and seeing what we can do to make this world a better place yeah. instead of worrying about some afterlife that nobody can prove even exists. And we have so many problems pandemic among them that need you know our best efforts we shouldn't be putting our best efforts uh, thinking about religion and god and godlings and Mm -hmm. supernatural things that nobody can prove exist when we have this real world and all of our real uh world crises and um and also um lovely things about our world to celebrate yeah. And giving we tend to give all the credit to religion. Yeah. And and, and on the, the three day development, one one of the factors on that is uh a scientist in Hong Kong had just published the genome of the coronavirus. So they were able to actually code vaccines to that exact genome, which ended up being a much faster pro- uh process because they'd been looking at coronavirus genomes for creating vaccines since the first uh, SARS epidemic back in 2004. And it's just really cool. (laughs) Well, this information, this knowledge is so important. And it it keeps growing. 
and every step grows you know is is built on the one before it and that's it's so awesome that that's that's how you know that that that's how science works. Well, I love to quote Dr. Anthony Fauci, who is a secular humanist, who said when, you know, as soon as Biden was in office, he was quoted saying, let the science speak. And he's <laughs> finally been unmuzzled. I'm sure he's appreciating <laughs> that. Um, he had a Catholic background, but has given interviews saying, you know, that he's not religious. Yeah. 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 All right. So. What should we be looking for from FFRF this year? Well, I hope we're going to be looking at our national convention in November. Uh, we had to defer our, our annual conference last year, and we had booked Gloria Steinem and Margaret Atwood and John Irving. Mm. <laughs> and I'm really hoping that we can have a post-pandemic bash uh, the second weekend in November in Boston. Um, I don't know if it will happen. It's just a nail biter, but we're all in the same boat and don't know about, you know, what public events we'll be able to hold, but it's looking rather promising. And, uh, you know, it will be a great thing if we can all get together and celebrate science and celebrate free thought and state church separation. Um, in terms of other things, uh, um, we have a very interesting couple of announcements. I can't announced them yet, but they have to do with helping to perpetuate secular studies at the university level, mm, which nice. I think is a, is a very important um, thing for us to do. We uh, are every year almost expanding our student essay competitions. Last year, we gave out over $100,000 in scholarships. We have six contests, including we added one last year in Puerto Rico, which we're hoping to do again in a Spanish, having the kids uh, write in a Spanish language. Oh, Anybody nice. from Puerto Rico in the right age group can already enter the contest, but we were working with the secular humanists of Puerto Rico who were choosing the winners, and that was a lot of fun. Um, so we're um, looking to continue to expand our helping the next generation of Young people rewarding those people who have independence of thought and critical thinking skills. We um, are, well, we are hoping to sue over the continuation of uh, public money, PPP money going to churches. That is not uh, final. Uh, we haven't been able to figure out whether that's going to be possible. We want to take a case that we can get somewhere with. Mm -hmm. But there was, you know, billions going to the Catholic Church, mm -hmm. um, other religions that didn't need it, and they've changed the rules at the SBA uh, in a way that could allow money to keep going to churches into perpetuity. So that's something we're watching mm. very carefully with, sounding out against. And well, Especially um, since they're like calling the, the Catholic Church a small business is absurd. <laughs> yes. And they forced them, they lobbied uh, Trump uh, to change the rules just for them um, so that, quote-unquote, small businesses of more than 500 people could get funding. And they changed the rules just for the Catholic mm -hmm. Church. And many of those, the Associated Press did terrific coverage and terrific exposés, pointing out that many of those dioceses that got huge amounts of money had a lot of 
either they had gone bankrupt, claimed they were bankrupt because they were being sued over pedophilia mm-hmm. or had, you know, horrible cases, recent cases in their um, history, getting all of this huge infusion of public money. So that is, you know, really um, very distressing. And we complained about it at the time, but we're looking at maybe we can sue something, sue about it now. So um, we always have several new lawsuits, and sometimes we don't know in March what we're going to be doing in November but um, in terms of litigation, but that's something that we're watching very carefully. We have um, a lot of other lawsuits uh, ongoing, and we hope to have a victory to announce this year against Governor Abbott in Texas. Very nice. And um, it's been going on in court for a long time, but it's over censorship of our Bill of Rights nativity display in the state capitol that he called obscene. And we have basically been winning, but there's a few little legal details to get through before we can finally declare victory against him. Uh, Governor Abbott, who's a fundamentalist, had told FFRF not to mess with Texas. So messing with <laughs> Texas is one of our favorite things. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> All right. And uh, if anybody needs help from your organization, how can they um, how can they reach out? Well, they can find us at FFRF.org. Um, the report is state church violation. There's a link under the legal link. And we'd be glad to send information, free copy of our newspaper brochure about our 40 plus years of achievements to anybody who uh, asks. There's an ask for info link at our website, or you can just join us, which we would love. We would love to be 50,000 strong. Our lobbyist in D.C. tells me that that's who Congress people listen to. They want they want to know there's a big constituency behind them. So that would really help us with, um, I didn't talk about all the congressional uh, laws that we're looking at, but one of them is called the Do No Harm Act. Mm-hmm. Very significant to pass, uh, to stop uh, the, um, the, the idea that if something's religious, they don't have to follow the law. There's a different standard for religion, but we're looking at some other reforms that we would love to tackle in Congress, but we need to have a slightly bigger uh, secular, I hate to use this word, but a secular army or um, <laughs> representing more of us. And there really are enough of us. We just need to be organized to, to make that influence. And we're already voting. Uh, secular people vote in strong measure, but younger people do not. That's one thing that we want to continue to emphasize, right. getting out that secular vote. Um, but joining us would be great. And being a dues-paying member means more in for, to the the to the lobbyists than if it was just people signing up not paying dues, right? That that's right. Um, yeah, you. I mean, we can talk about how many millions of non-religious people there are, but they really want to see who do you who do you as an organization represent? Because um, those are the people who are getting our action alerts, for example. Those are the people who are more apt, apt to do something. So, yeah, we, we need to take a cue from from the so-called moral majority and all of the religious right and all of their lobbying efforts and step up what we're doing so that our voices will be heard, that reason and the secular constitution will prevail. All righty. I should probably let you get to bed. <laughs> yeah, well, it's been a delight. Thank it's you. It's been a real pleasure. Dwayne. Thank you for inviting me. All right. Thank you very much for uh, 
joining us on the Atheist Nomads. And in feedback, we got from Mrs. Bates Motel over from Discord. I've really enjoyed the last few episodes. I thought the case about the Pastafarian was interesting. My main concern is who gets to decide what is satirical religion and what is sincerely held beliefs. Lucian was talking about something similar on the show a few weeks ago, where the people in power who dislike the TST claim that it's just a total troll religion made to mock Christians in an attempt to get their cases fighting for pluralism thrown out. The seven tenets are very much beliefs that can be sincerely held, and why are there that many who try to dismiss them as satirical? I worry that when the majority is allowed to decide what is considered real religion, and what is not, that will see an erosion of rights of minority religious groups. All of that being said, I totally relate to Lauren talking about there being about being bored with this guy's legal battle to wear his headwear on his license, and also that twenty-year-old me would have been like, "Hell yeah, stick to that man." <laughs> Side note: El Diablo is catchy AF and super sexy, but in no way is glorifying Satan worship. Good grief, y'all. Just a pop song. One more I'm going to go download. All right, so here's, here's my, my main response to that. Um, and, and there was some discussion on there, so if you want to check it out, go to atheistnomads.com slash discord and join on in. Pastafarianism, according to the Flying Spaghetti Monster website at spaghettimonster.org slash about, they do say that it is satire. So yeah, they even identify themselves as that. The Satanic Temple kind of goes with the opposite approach of not trying to be satire, but being much more aggressive. And, you know, you, when you compare the two, trying to go with a satire view on religion, well, that would have made a lot of sense back in, you know, the late 2000s and early 2010s when there was a lot of animosity towards atheism and trying to get in, not being too pushy, but, you know, kind of goofy about it would help with getting into that kind of stuff. Like getting to go do the, yeah, to, to go do stuff and, and try to, to show how silly a lot of those religious things are that they have a tendency to do in like government meetings. So yeah, that totally makes sense. The Satanic Temple was going for a more aggressive response to the right wing and Christian nationalists coming on a lot more strongly. So I, I totally get that. And to it totally makes sense. And yeah, both of them to me seem kind of silly, but also they have their place. They are important and we need stuff like that to keep the, keep things, try to get things back to moving forward and getting better. So yeah. Yes, based on satire, yeah, Flying Spaghetti Monster is a, definitely, that is all satire. <laughs> Satanic Temple is, it's a literary thing. Not satire, but, you know, still kind of, you know, it, it is fiction that a lot of that's based on, and that's, that's reasonable. Yes, they have these, yeah, with their seven tenets. Yeah, those are serious beliefs that a lot of humanists have. And yes, there is definitely concern here that as the Christian nationalists in control of the courts and a bunch of states keep trying to move things back to a time that never existed, that groups like this will be completely rejected as not actually being religion 
and therefore not worthy of the special treatments that religions get. And that would suck. That is one reason why I think the Satanic Temple is a better version of that for right now. But if you, you like the Pastafarian stuff, yeah, that's fine too. <laughs> but yeah. Anyway, so that's going to be it on that for now. Um, if you want to join in the discussion on that, there's always Discord. Or you can join us on the, the live stream on there. I'll have the chat up. Um, if you want to contact us, you can either go to, you know, join us on Discord at atheistomads.com slash Discord. Or use the website's contact form at atheistomads.com. You can send us an email at feedback at atheistnomads.com. And if you want to support the show, you can find out how at atheistnomads.com slash donate. And until next week, when we have the episode 400 live stream, please join us March 20, 2 o'clock p.m. Mountain Daylight Time for that live stream to celebrate 400 episodes. But anyway, till next week, remember, not all those who wander are lost. Thank you for listening to another episode of Atheist Nomads. You can find show notes and contact information at atheistnomads.com. Follow us on Twitter at Atheist Nomads and like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash atheistnomads. Please subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcatcher of choice. And while you're there, feel free to leave us a review. Theme music is courtesy of Sturdy Fred. Until next time, this has been The Atheist Nomads.